Let's, uh, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. It's funny the feeling of security I have now. Oh. <laughs> Genesis 5, we'll start in a few minutes with a passage we read last week. We'll look at it again. Uh, this morning's message is going to assume something, and I feel comfortable assuming it because many of you already believe it. And the few of you who might disagree with our message, I think I can convince you that you already believe it also. This message assumes that you need to be saved. Now, many of us here believe that we need to be saved and we have found a savior. Uh, but even if you don't agree with our main message, even if you don't agree with us about this book, maybe even about the existence of God himself, I bet you already believe that you need to be saved. And the reason I know that is that you're not going to claim to be immortal. Never met anybody that claimed to be immortal. We all already believe that one day we are going to die. And that means that you know that one day you will eternally perish. You know that day. You already believe that. And what's more, I bet I don't have to convince you that the world around you is broken. Uh, governments as big as China oppressing their people, constant injuries to our bodies, uh, constant, we have to go to the doctor all the time to get fixed. I mean, we're just in bad shape, everything around us in bad shape. We need to be fixed. And the fact is, I'm sure you're not conquering the brokenness in your life. And I'm sure you're not conquering the brokenness in this world. And we're certainly not conquering our own inevitable deaths. We, we all believe we need to be saved. And so I'm just gonna start out assuming that. If you feel right now that you need someone to save you and save us from this mess that we are in, you're not alone. In fact, so many people in the pages of this book felt the same way and they cried out for a savior. And you could say that this whole book is a story of God providing one for those people who were longing for him. So this message today is gonna to talk about a righteous man who is able to save us. We're gonna look at the life of one particular person named Noah, a story is told in Genesis. And we have been walking through the book of Genesis. It's been a slow walk. It's the second largest book in the Bible and maybe the most dense book in the Bible. So we're taking our time. Uh, and the, the fact is we're gonna pause right now and we're gonna study Noah for just one day and see what his life teaches us about the kind of person who is able to save humanity. I pray this message will show you how great the one who can save us is and will just move us all, all of our hearts to burst for that one. Let's look together first at Genesis chapter five. Uh, we read verses 28 and 29 last week, but we didn't talk about them. And we're gonna read them this week. This is when Noah is born. It says, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. The word of the Lord. Now we're going to be bouncing through the following chapters this morning. We'll go back and back and back to different parts of the scripture. But here we have the story of Noah's birth. He is born to a man named Lamech. Now if you've been with us recently, we read recently about another man named Lamech who was evil. That This is a different person named Lamech, not the same one. And when he's born, when Noah is born, his father gives him this blessing. Like, may this one be the one who lifts us from this curse of the ground. These are people who are working the ground. If you've ever garden, do you know how much work it is? He says, maybe, maybe Noah will lift us from this curse. So there's great hope 
and Noah when he is born. Uh, Now, this is a pattern in Genesis that you see a lot. Fathers often bless or curse their sons, and when they do, there is prophetic authority in it. This begins with the Lord who blesses Adam, his covenant son, and says, be fruitful and multiply, cover the earth, right? That's not a command, that's a a blessing. That's something you're not going to stop humanity from doing. One generation will make another generation, and they will rise up after them, and you're not going to stop that from happening, because it came right from the Lord. Be fruitful, multiply, cover the earth. Uh, The Lord also says to the serpent who tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying them, right? One descendant of this woman is going to come along and crush you. That has prophetic power. That's not just a command or a blessing. That's a statement of what will happen. Uh, And he says to Adam, because Adam sinned, cursed is the ground because of you. That has authority. Later on, you'll see Jacob and Esau fighting for their father's blessing. That's not a a daddy issues kind of thing going on. That's because Jacob or Isaac's blessing had authority. Whoever got it received a prophetic blessing. It would come true for their whole lives. You see this pattern throughout Genesis. Now when Noah is born, his father says, may this one be the one to bring us relief from our toil. So he hears that curse that's upon Adam, upon the ground because of Adam. Right, And he says, oh, maybe this will lift us from it. He knows that a descendant of Eve is going to come along and break the curse because of what God said. He sees that he's one of those descendants and he says, oh, may this son be the one. Can you sense the amount of hope that is put in Noah when he is born? And then for 500 years before much happens in the story, people are looking at him. Maybe this one is the one who was promised. Maybe he's going to lift the curse from us. Maybe he is the righteous one who's going to come and save us. And so they're watching him. And what they find when they watch him is that he is indeed a very righteous man who has the favor of God. So let's look at chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Now, the one who's going to come along and save us is going to have to be long anticipated, uh, and he's going to have to be righteous as well. And here's what chapter 6 says about him. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So there's one righteous man among a generation. So they're they're all looking to him. He's hoped for, and now he's righteous among his generation. So much so that he has got the favor of God upon him. Now, everyone around him is trading God's good ways for evil. Everyone around him is forsaking God's ways so much that the Lord actually becomes sorry he ever even made mankind. But here's this one guy who's got the Lord's favor. Now, if uh, if anyone is going to come along and save us, It's going to have to be somebody like that. It's going to have to be someone who can walk among a crooked generation and walk righteously. Uh, You have no doubt seen many people do wicked things in your life. You have probably been let down by people who have led you and maybe people that you lead. You've been let down by people you love. 
The one who would come along to save us, the promised one, will not do those things. He will not let people down with his sin. He will walk righteously among his generation. And Noah fits that bill. And so there's a lot of hope put in Noah. This is a righteous man among wicked people. And somebody's coming along to save us. Maybe he's the one. Well, we get to see that righteousness in action after that. Genesis 6, we'll look at uh, verses 11 and 12. So skip down to verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and it shall cover, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, and its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make windows for the ark and finish it. Finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark on the side of it and you shall make it with lower second and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I'll establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they should be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them." Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. So you see how detailed those instructions are, right? A cubit is from a person's elbow to the tip of their hand. You measure that out. This is how long it needs to be. This is how high it needs to be. Bring this much food. These animals will come to you. The Noah hears all that from the Lord, and he says, okay. And every last bit of it, he, he does. That's how righteous this guy is. Down to the cubit, everything God tells him to do, he does. God says, I've got this plan to save you and your family. And Noah listens and he takes it. Now, the one who would come along to save us would be just like this. He'll hear the salvation plan from God and he will obey it completely. He will take it. And so Noah's fitting the bill even more. We can put more and more hope in him as this story goes on. And the reason he obeys the Lord so completely is that he has faith. Uh, Hebrews 11 says it was by faith that Noah obeyed these instructions. Noah heard the instructions from God. He trusted God, and so he did just as God said. Uh, this is how it works with us, too, in our lives. If we believe the Lord and trust him, we'll do as he says. Uh, I look at it like this. Have you ever bought a piece of furniture uh, and it comes with this really crazy instruction manual that you're really not thrilled about, but you got to put together the piece of furniture yourself? And nine out of 10 of us, what do we do with that manual, right? We look at it and we say, whoop, right? Manual's gone. We're diving in. We're going to put the thing together ourselves, right? And then there's like one out of 10 people that are like, you know what? 
this manufacturer, they made this thing and they know how to put it together. I'm gonna follow every step in the manual and I'm gonna put it together the way that they say. Now, what's the difference between those two kinds of people? Nine out of 10 people think the manufacturer doesn't know what they're doing, right? Like these people can't, they don't know how to build stuff. They don't know how to give clear instructions. I don't trust them at all. I'm throwing their instructions away. I'm gonna build this thing my way. And the few people that actually follow all the steps in the manual are the people who say, well, these people built the thing. They know what they're talking about. So out of their trust in the manufacturer, out of their faith, you could say in the manufacturer saying they know what they're doing. They follow the instructions given them by the manufacturer. We do the same thing with the instructions the Lord gives us. Some of us look at them and say, well, there is no God in heaven or this God doesn't know what he is doing. I do not trust this God. And out of a lack of trust in him, we throw the instructions away and we build the furniture our own way. Others of us say, this Lord's ways are good. And so we seek the manual, right? We seek the book, we read it, and we do what it says. That's grounded in faith and trust of the one who gave us the instructions. Noah does just that. He trusts the one who gave him the instructions, and he does everything the Lord says. So it seems like there's really good reason to place hope in Noah. Well, that's what he did. He trusted God. It was faith. He did what God said. And in this case, it actually saved humanity. Like the species survives because Noah's righteous before God. Uh, we're going to read all of chapter 7 next. We're going to see this happen. We will be delivered through Noah's obedience. So let's take a little time, but we'll just read the whole thing. Chapter 7. So says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark. You and all your household, for you alone have I seen to be righteous before me in this time. There it is again. You shall take with you one of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female. And of the animals that are not clean, too, a male and his female. And also the birds of the sky by sevens, a male and female, to keep the offspring alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water and the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and the birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wives and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. So that's eight people if you're counting. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark and to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, 
and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose down to the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds, cattle, and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all of mankind. And all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. Thus, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And Noah only was left together with those that were with him on the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. I wanted to read every word of that because I wanted us to sense the gravity of the story. Every animal and every person except for eight people lost the breath of life on that day as the waters came down. So as we're at the low point of this story, I want to I want to show you how important the next sentence is. Uh, stories like this often have a symmetry to them. Uh, it's very common in Genesis for a story or a phrase or for something to be symmetrical in nature. A few things will happen in order and then the opposite of those things will happen in reverse order. Things like that. They like to do that a lot in Genesis. We've talked about it a little bit some. It's called a, a chiasm. If you like big words, you can drop at parties. You can drop chiasm at the next party that you're at. But it's just a simple device where things work symmetrically in a story. And that's what happens here in the story. We have a big one. There are at least five things that happen in this story and then the opposite of them happens in reverse order. So first you have people committing violence and then God gives a resolution he's gonna destroy and then they enter the ark and then the flood begins and the flood rises. Now we just read all of that. Now later what will happen is the opposite. Instead of the flood rising, the flood recedes. Instead of the ground getting wet, the ground dries out. Instead of them entering the ark, then they leave the ark. Instead of God giving a resolution to destroy, he resolves that he will never again destroy the earth. And instead of violence on the earth, God actually forbids violence and murder more strongly upon the earth. So you have things happen in order in one way, and then their opposites happen in the opposite order. Really nice little poetic structure this author put in. Now, sometimes they will do this, and kind of like a, a stone archway that has like each, each stone has its twin there's one stone in the middle right and that stone is going to be the beautiful stone the big stone the important stone right the centerpiece of the whole archway sometimes they'll do that and that's what Moses does here as he writes this story he puts the most important thing right in the center and it is the very first few words in chapter 8 and here they are the centerpiece of this story the most important part of the story but God remembered Noah. That's the center. God remembered Noah. 
and all the beasts of the cattle that were with him on the ark, and then we go on to the next thing. God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. Now we're back on the back end of the story. The center of it, the most important thing you need to know about someone who could ever come and save us from this mess is that in the darkest hour of his story, God will remember him. God will not forget him. Now, there are two reasons God remembered Noah. We've talked about them both. I'll make the connection here. First, Noah was righteous before God, right? Because he had earned God's favor, God remembered him. Uh, But second, God had made a promise that he was going to keep. He promised the serpent that a descendant of Eve was going to come and crush him, right? If all the descendants of Eve are wiped out, he's not able to keep that promise anymore. So he's bound by his own word. He must preserve someone from this line because he has said he would. So on one hand, because of the promise the Lord had made, and on the other hand, because of this man's righteousness, the race of humanity is saved. Eight people are kept alive in the ark. So After this now, everything happens in reverse order like we talked about. And for the sake of time, I won't read it all to you, but I'm sure you can imagine it all happening. The waters recede, the waters dry up, they leave the ark, and then something kind of neat happens that sometimes we don't know what to do with. In chapter eight, verse 20, Uh, We're going to see Noah offer a sacrifice to God, which is not something we see often this early in the story. But verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Then the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So Noah offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And the part of it we might have trouble imagining is that the Lord actually smells it and is pleased. We have a hard time imagining that God would actually react to the offerings that we give him. We just gave to him our tithes and offerings earlier. And often we forget that the Lord is in heaven looking down and either saying, ah, I I am pleased by this or you're not giving the way I taught you to. I'm not. We don't don't think of God doing that, but he does in the same way that you would walk into a house. And if a cake is being baked in that house and you smelled it, you would say, "Mm, that smells good. Good, like be pleasing in your gut. The Lord smells this offering that, that uh, Noah gives to him, and he says, I am pleased by this. The same way that you can give a gift to somebody and say, Ooh, I hope they like it, I hope they like it, and they open it up and then they smile and, Yeah, they liked it, all right. Like that dynamic is there. The Lord receives gifts and smiles when they are offered the way that he says to, Well, he sees Noah offer this gift, he smells the offering, and he says, I am pleased by this. And he says he's not going to curse the ground again. Does that sound familiar? Remember the prophecy that was said about Noah by by Lamech? Maybe this one will give us relief from the curse of the ground. And now God says, never again will I curse the ground. I'm not going to curse the ground. And so now we've got some reason to celebrate. Never again am I going to destroy the earth like this because of that one man's righteousness and because of his sacrifice. We have so much to be thankful for. So what we're seeing here at play is, is just the principle that 
it is possible to offer a sacrifice to God to atone for sin, right? I mean, God looks down and he says, man isn't any less sinful, right? Mankind's intentions are evil, but I'm pleased by this offering and I won't destroy mankind again. So God can be moved to forgive sins because of an offering that is offered up to him. And Noah fits that bill too. He offers an offering that the Lord is pleased with, that the Lord enjoys. And we live today in one sense because the Lord was pleased with him. So we thank God for Noah. And we admit right now that you and I would not be here without him. Uh, There may not even be life at all on the planet if it weren't for God providing one righteous man. And you and I owe our lives to the righteousness of one man. But I wonder if you see some holes in the story. First of all, Noah, could he really be righteous enough to save humanity if the prophecy about him was that maybe this one will give us relief from the curse of the ground? And the Lord does say, I won't curse the ground again, but he doesn't actually lift the curse. We aren't relieved of the curse from the ground. If you're a gardener or a farmer, you know full well it is still hard work. That curse is not lifted. And so there's a bit of a hole there. It doesn't totally add up. Like it doesn't do what we thought he was going to do. And I guess I might as well tell you now as any point that Noah does save humanity, but it's kind of the elephant in the room here. Like most of humanity dies in the story, right? Like only eight people survive because of his righteousness. And so his righteousness is not great enough to extend to the whole earth and save everyone on every part of the earth only this little pocket and so we have to kind of be left wondering like I mean Noah looks like the promised one who would save us but you have to kind of fudge the details a little bit in order to to really get there Uh, well if you're wondering the story ends in a way that answers that question definitively is this this guy the righteous one that's going to save us or not Well, the ending of the story just gives a clear answer. We can go ahead and read that. Genesis 9, 18 to 29, we're gonna read next. This will tell us whether Noah's righteous enough to save us all. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Uh, These three were sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And then Noah began farming, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and he uncovered himself inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine. He knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and then the sound of judgment falls and he died. Noah gives us relief from our toil, but not a good kind. He gives us wine and drunkenness. 
And since then, workers have continued to seek drunkenness and wine for relief from their toil. And often it leads to family problems as bad and dramatic as what happened in Noah's family. So yes, he does bring us relief from the toil, but it's relief I would never advise anyone to take. Tragic fulfillment of the prophecy instead of beautiful fulfillment. And then Noah, this righteous one that we're hoping in, exposes himself in his drunkenness and then his son shames him and so in anger when he wakes up with a hangover, curses his son in a way that resounds throughout history. This grandson of his Canaan whom he cursed is the father of the Canaanites who become Israel's just mortal enemies for most of the rest of the Old Testament. The really bad guys are the descendants of Canaan. And if you're wondering, Shem is the line that the Jewish people come from. That's where we get the phrase like Semite and anti-Semite because it's the semantic line from, from Shem. And so this curse that he gives here just echoes for generations and brings tragedy upon many, many people. What a letdown. Noah cannot be the righteous one that saves humanity. In the end of the day, he just flops. And so I hope that leaves your heart crying out for a truly righteous one to come along and save us. If it can't be Noah, who will it be? Some son of Eve is going to come and save us. And some of you know the answer already because we sing about it every week. I mean, it's, you know, the plot twist isn't really a twist to a lot of you here, I know. We celebrate here that one did come. A son of Eve did come who was God in the flesh. Uh, and the Old Testament saints just knew he was coming, but we get to know what his name is. We get to know that the righteous one who saved humanity is Jesus of Nazareth, not Noah of old. Jesus is the one that is long foretold, more so than Noah. Noah's dad gives him a prophecy when he is born, and there is hope placed in him. But we have generations and generations, books and books of prophets who looked forward to the coming of Jesus, who said he would come from the line of David, he would be born of a virgin, he would be born in Bethlehem, he would gently lead the young, he would be a good shepherd. So many things about him that this one man fulfills. So much so that when he is born, there is an old man hanging out in the sanctuary just just waiting for the consolation of Israel to come and he holds this baby boy because the Lord had told him you will not die before you see my salvation he holds that baby boy and says now you're letting your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation the one we were longing for and hoping for wasn't Noah he just had a little hope put in him it is Jesus Christ he's the one also Jesus is the one who grew in favor with God and with man as the scriptures say very plainly about him and he stood apart from a crooked generation even his opponents couldn't challenge his righteousness they challenge him all the time but they couldn't accuse him of any kind of sin because he was so blameless for the people when he spoke they said this guy is different he stands out in this generation so Noah stood out in his generation but Jesus even more so 
Jesus is the one who fully obeyed God when he laid out his salvation plan. I mean, God gave a salvation plan to Noah. It was particular, build this ark, do this this way. Jesus obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. We read earlier this morning that he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. When the Lord lays out, here is my salvation plan. Son, you go to the cross, you die in their place. He says, I will obey you completely. And he He built not an ark to save a few, but he carried a beam up a hill to save many. He is the obedient one to God's salvation plan. And like Noah, Jesus is the one that God remembered. In the darkest hour of his story, just like with Noah, he lays silently in a grave with no power of his own. And his father raises him from the dead and the power of his spirit puts the breath of life back in his lungs and said, I am pleased with what you did. Here is your life back. He takes his life back because the Lord remembered him for his righteousness. And he is, he is the one whose sacrifice pleased God more so than Noah. Now Noah offers an animal sacrifice. The Lord is pleased with it, right? But Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice and God looks down in heaven and says I am satisfied I will not remember the sins of anyone who trusts in this son of mine and Noah's sacrifice was good enough to save the species but Jesus sacrifice was big enough to cover the whole world in a way that Noah's could not so that he could save anyone in any corner of the earth. Even you here today, 2,000 years later on the other side of the earth can put your faith in him and find forgiveness for your sins. The one that we are hoping in is Jesus. Noah teaches us how to hope in him, but he's not the place where we can land our hope. We gotta land it in Jesus. So here's where we land. Can we just marvel at how beautiful this book is? That God's plan of salvation was not an improvised plan at the last minute. He knew just what he was going to do from the very beginning and he planned out little things that point forward to Jesus even in days of old. God's salvation plan is complex and beautiful and wonderful and yet for you is it as simple as putting your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. It is a profound enough plan to save you thousands of years in the making from a wise God. And so what you must do is put all of your hope, all of your trust in Jesus to save you from sin and death, from having to pay for your own sin and from all of the mess of this world in due time when he comes back. So people ask, well, how do I do that? Right? Like, what do I do with my hands? Like, what, what do, I want to trust in Jesus. What do I do? And, and that's not a weird question in the Bible. People ask the same thing. They, they, they want to follow Jesus. They say, what must I do to be saved? But the trick is, it's not anything that you do with your hands, right? What you must do is in your heart, put your trust upon him. He died to pay for your sins. He rose from the dead to guarantee resurrection for you. And all you got to do is trust him and he will extend that to you. 
Now, if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to trust him, he will change you and turn you into the sort of person who follows all of his ways. You, you must forsake the old ways. And now that you call him Lord, the things that you knew he did not want you to do, you must forsake them and say, I don't do those things anyway, uh, anymore. I follow him. Uh, you've got to profess that faith before many by being baptized in water to show people that you follow him. But it all starts with that internal decision that just says, Jesus, I trust you and I follow you. Let's pray together right now. I'm gonna pray in a way that voices my own faith in Jesus. If you'd like to join me, join me. And if you wanna pray it for the first time, just pray it in your heart right along with me.